Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Tennis Channel Insight and on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels here in the Santa Monica studios, as always, with another podcast, another conversation with a member of the tennis community. We have a good one today. I'm going to throw out the word legendary. It's a coach in the game for several decades with tons of players guiding Jim Curry to world number one, working with the USTA, head coach in the past at Fresno State, now working with Tommy Paul, who had quite the run at Indian Wells and is playing his best tennis it's Brad Stein joining us on location in Indian Wells, as you can see in his background. If you're watching this on video, we got quite the location. Brad, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I really appreciate you guys asking me. Yeah, it's great to be able to talk with you. As I said, you've been in, involved in the game for so long and shaped some of the game's best players, especially in America. Uh, you know, starting with that, and we try to just do the backstory here. Uh, you know, it is hard. You're kind of a man of mystery for your origin story. There's not a lot about you. I know you, San Mateo. <laughs> That's good. You, yeah. I, I, I like that, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I know you like the uh, outdoor uh, activities. So I, I'm wondering if just wanting to be outside is kind of where the love of tennis started. And, you know, you do your rock climbing, I think snowboarding in there. But where did the tennis love come from in California? I was actually a baseball player as a kid. You know, that was mm -hmm. my that was my first passion and my first love as a sport. And I got into tennis uh, pretty late, you know, for for, you know, what we talk about most of the time nowadays. I really started playing tennis around 14, 14 and a half. I actually played my first tournament ever when I was 15 years mm -hmm. old. I just got into it late, you know, and I was I was going to go to I was going to go to high school and I was trying to kind of decide between uh, between tennis and um and baseball at that time and and uh broken my nose a couple times in baseball and gotten beat up a little bit by it and stuff you know and i made this big decision in my own life to to kind of go to tennis and and that's where i started and I, I you know i played junior tennis in northern california and and then biggest thing for me from my own standpoint from my own tennis was big decision to go to junior college at kenyatta junior college and uh they had a very very good coach that was, you know, working there. He was working with a couple of pros at the time. And, and that was really a big thing for me as far as like growing as a player and also learning some of the fundamentals that like, even to this day, from a uh, technical standpoint, I still, I still use in my coaching. And you said something very interesting there. And um, I'm just going back to it. You didn't start playing tennis till age 14. You know, you go from baseball to tennis. Did you feel like it was a little later in, uh, you know, the development that you might have missed out on, boy, if I would have started earlier, I could have gotten into, you know, a higher level of tennis because you still played at an exceptionally high level, which is remarkable for starting just at 14. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's always been a bit of a, a bit of a lament in, uh, in my own life that I, I um, didn't get started earlier. I felt like it always hurt me. Uh, I would say probably one of the, the worst parts of my game as a player was my return. And I always felt like not having grown up playing more junior tennis from a younger age was a, was a big factor in that actually. 
And that decision to kind of get into coaching, I mean, I'm looking at it from the outside too. Like you played tennis, you know, you were a late beginner. Maybe the potential was capped because of that. But do you think that might have pushed you into, you, know, you fell in love with this game later in life. Now there is an avenue to work in it and get involved in the coaching. Yeah, 100%. I, I mean, because I, I, I wasn't a great player by any means. You know, I mean, I, I, was, uh, I was an okay player. I, I played Division One college tennis. I, I beat a few guys here and there. You know, I played some money tournaments and stuff like that. And, and um, I, I had some decent wins. I never had a lot of, like, really big, like, consistent processes where I, where I played really well. You know, I, I went to Europe and I played uh, money tournaments in France for – three or four summers, which was a great experience. I played a number of guys that ended up becoming top hundred players, you know? So, so, I mean, I loved the, I loved playing. I really, really, really wanted to be a player. I mean, like it yeah. was, it was like a passion to want to be a player at the same time. Um, you know, that same coach that I played for at Kenyatta junior college, he, he used to always have a saying that if you wanted to be a great player, you needed to become a student of the game. And, and I think that that's something that really, you know, stuck with me and that I, because I wasn't a great player and because maybe I was a late bloomer coming in, um, I really grasped that process and, and really tried to become a student of the game. And, um, and, and I think that that then translated a lot to, to the coaching. And, and I do have to say that, listen, I got into coaching when I did because of, uh, you know, another great mentor of mine, uh, a legend in the college game, Greg Patton. Greg, at that time, when I was 26 years old, um, he was coaching the, the U.S. Junior Davis Cup team, which is what we called our, our junior national team back then. And um, Greg called me and, and uh, asked me to be his assistant coach. And at the time, I was planning on going back to France to play one more year in France. And I thought, you know, this is going to kind of be my last year to really play. I'm, I'm going to have to get a little bit serious, find a job, do something, yeah. you know. I was basically being kind of a tennis bum at that point, you know, and um, yeah. I'd already bought a ticket to go to France and I was planning on spending three or four months there just playing tournaments and making a little money and having a good time. And Greg, you know, we had two phone calls that probably lasted at least an hour or so each time. And he basically just talked me into taking the position, working with the junior Davis cup team. And that was a massive, massive decision. One, because he was a great mentor as a coach, but it also put me in touch with Courier and Chang and Sampras and Jonathan Stark and yeah. Jeff Tarango and all these guys that were part of that upcoming group of tennis that dominated, you know, the world scene kind of in the 90s. So that, that was such a huge decision for me to, to be able to be part of that program. So that was mid 80s. And this that was your first job in tennis as coaching was working with those guys. Was with you know, working with funny, Courier, was, Sampras, it, Chang. It wasn't my first. Yeah. I was the assistant <laughs> yeah. coach at US, at uh, at Fresno State okay. uh, at at that time already. But it, okay. but it it really was a massive introduction yeah. to coaching at the high performance level. Right, and you have. I mean, did you realize how insane that talent boom was? Like, I mean, I'm rattling off those names. I didn't even get to like Todd Martin, Malave, Washington, like David yeah. Wheaton. Like, did you realize at the time as a young coach, young student of the game, like? This is something special. Like this crop of talent, this depth doesn't come along that often. Yeah, you know, it's funny because if you know Greg Patton, I mean, he's got such an incredibly infectious personality. And and I was probably a little bit too young and hadn't been around that level enough to recognize how good all those guys were at that point already, much less how good they were going to be down the road. But Greg kind of did. 
and so Greg Greg was pushing that narrative all the time and and that got into my head a little bit you know so I I did from that standpoint he he kind of like you know got me to realize the the level of talent that we had amongst that group and I don't think he or I would have ever expected that the number of guys from that group that made top hundred would have actually all gotten there. But mm-hmm. it, I mean, it was an astounding group of guys that, um, that we had an opportunity to be involved with and, um, and that all, you know, so many of those guys made the top hundred. And Brad, one of the things with coaches I'm always curious and fascinated by is when or how over time they developed their style. When do you think your coaching style kind of took form? Was it right from the get-go? Did you have like a way to deal or did you kind of evolve with how, how the game was going, how the players you worked with were going? How did you develop that style? Yeah, I, I think that I had a basic foundation of, um, of how I wanted to teach the game from a, from a technical standpoint from pretty early on, just from people that I have worked with and been involved with, you know, and and um, again, I go back to that coach at uh, Kenyatta Junior College that there was a guy who was actually a, a teaching pro in, in Fresno that I worked with a little bit post Fresno State when I finished my playing time at Fresno State, a guy named Kyler Legler that was a bit of a, a guru of the game. And um, those guys were advocates early on of a little bit more of an open stance footwork position, which wasn't very common at that time. And uh, that was something that I took on in my own mentality. And then, you know, listen, I've been so lucky over the course of my career to be involved with with um, really, really great mentors. Like I said, that, you know, Rich Anderson at, at Kenyatta Junior College. And then I went from him to Greg Patton, who, you know, one of the best motivational guys in the game and and a guy that really taught me that there was a lot more to coaching than just the technical aspects of it or even the tactical aspects of it you know greg greg was a big morals and ethics guys with with the guys that we worked with and and really demanded a standard of conduct with those guys and that's something that i've always been pretty strong with you know and then i went from there to spending a lot of time with tom gullickson and and i mean that was a massive opportunity for me to be around a guy who had played at the level that Gully had played at, but also was such a great tactician as a coach, you know, and I learned so much spending time around him. When I was working for the USTA, Gully and I did 16 weeks straight on the road from the start of the summer (laughs) to the end of the summer, finished at the juniors at the US Open one year. And and, uh, man, I learned so much with him and we also drank a lot of beers. Yeah, I- And then finally, let me me (laughs) finish, because then finally, Jose Higueras. Of course. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, and Jose, Jose, I think is, you know, to this day is just such a, a special mind within our game. And I got a chance to be around and and work with him so closely, you know, that 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 really all, all those guys. And at that point, I mean, when I was working with Jose, I was still only 31 years old when I first started being around Jose on a regular basis. You know, so I was very lucky to, at a pretty early age, have gotten some amazing exposure with some great coaches. Yeah, and I got to think as well, part of it, maybe more of it as the older you got, was learning how to you know, manage people, manage players, get through to a player that is willing to work, wants to be the best, has all the skills. And I've even heard you say in other interviews, at the top of the game, it's nuances, it's not much. And you know, there isn't a handbook for managing people, managing players when, you know, the going gets tough. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, and again, I, I do think, you know, I was very lucky that when I started full-time with Jim Courier, for example, I came straight out of collegiate tennis. And one of the great things about coaching in college tennis is that it's, it's a very autocratic society. You know what the coach says goes yep. period. That's it. You know? And we have, we have one of the greatest tools in sports in collegiate tennis that we don't have in pro tennis you know it's called the bench playing time yeah (laughs) yeah playing time is so big obviously everybody wants to play you know everybody wants to be in the game but you can you can sit guys and guys don't want to sit guys want to be able to play and and so that was a that was a big thing and I was a I was a little bit of an autocratic um type of coach coming out of collegiate tennis and so when I went on the tour and was working with Jim I kind of carried that over and I kind of approached Jim, you know, as a, he was a 20 year old when I first started with him. So he really would have been, you know, kind of a junior in college probably. And, and I kind of approached him as, as a guy that would be on my college tennis team. And it was kind of like, like, look, what I say goes and, and Jim to his credit um, was an extremely coachable guy. And, and he took on that same mentality that like, look, I'm looking to you to tell me, what I'm supposed to be doing and then I'll implement it. And, and obviously if he didn't agree, then, you know, he, he would voice that opinion, but it was also lucky for me that what we were implementing was coming also from Jose primarily. Jose was really directing the ship at that time. And I was implementing Jose's plan as a coach. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Brad Stein here on Tennis Channel Insight, and uh, you mentioned it, the partnership with Jim Courier, uh, 90 to 94, a heck of a run there. We'll, we'll get to the, the stats in just a second, but you mentioned his coachability. Behind the curtain, was that what, you know, because we always want to know, what did the greats have? He got to number one, so few have, and there's skill level, there's work ethic, we know how intense he was on the court. Uh, do you think it was that coachability and the ability to kind of just listen and make adjustments that set him apart? I mean, you know, it's funny because I, I say all the time, you know, when I when I do these kind of things and I and I have an opportunity to speak about that time, Jim was probably the most coachable player in a lot of ways, but he was also the most stubborn player in a lot of ways. And and both those two characteristics, I think, translated to his ability to to maximize what he had as a player, you know, and, and I think that Jose recognized right away and it's become a, a foundation of what I do with players that uh, you know, Jim was pretty much incapable of defending on the backhand side prior to, to working with Jose and I, and Jose recognized that right away. And, and he, he implemented and had us, uh, work on and practice a slice backhand every single day for the first year that we were together. And we did it every single day, regardless of whether he had a match or not, you know, we would, we would practice slice backhand. And, and I'm convinced to this day that, um, developing the slice backhand is what really translated from a technical and a tactical standpoint to allowing Jim to, to progress to the top 10. And then, and then even the number one, you know I mean? And, and obviously a big part of that is also just how mentally strong and mentally tough he was. He also had one of the biggest, best forehands in the game at that time, but 
prior to that, he wasn't able to defend at all, really, on the backhand yeah. side. And all of a sudden, he he was able to stay in points with guys much longer. Well, four Grand Slam titles during that run, uh, 12 tournaments. Uh, do you look back and just, I, mean, I don't want to say think how lucky you were, but just how special that time was. Because you were still a young guy at the moment, just really starting your pro coaching career. And there you are at the helm of one of the great runs in uh, tennis. Yeah, and I've been I've been living on it ever since. I mean, come on. <laughs> you said it. Nobody else did. But yeah. I mean, no. I mean, I, I, trust me. In the moment, in the moment, you're. I mean, you're just loving it and absorbing it, and and um, and everything that's going on. Um, just trying to you know keep them at that level and keep working and keep progressing. But but you know, as time passes and you look back on it, I mean, such an amazing you know, situation and, and, and for him to have won four slams, seven, seven slam finals, you know, that, that course of time was just really, really exceptional. Do you have any, I mean, I like to dig into the stories if we can, because everyone talks about that 91 French open final with the rain delays against Agassi. And one of the things that's came out is, and Jim's even said this, the tactical adjustments. So what, if anything, can you share from that moment where you guys maybe went to plan B and, and you, you saw a coaching well, that, game plan go through? Listen, that was all Jose. <laughs> okay. Because the, the, first, the first title that Jim won uh, in 91 at the French, I was, I was being paid at that time by the USTA. Uh, and so we were working with a number of other players. And, and I actually left Paris <laughs> after the semis to go to England and be with Todd Martin and a number of other guys that were playing on the grass in Queens. So I watched that final from the locker room in Queens and Jose was the, uh, okay. the mastermind of going into the locker room during that rain delay and, and telling Jim to back up from the baseline a little bit and, and return from a deeper position in the court. Okay. I'll, I'll attribute that to some work on the practice court with you as well, you know, to kind of <laughs> give you some credit there, but in, in the other side of it, I'm sure you learned a lot at the elite level of how to handle when there's just nothing you can really do. I look at that 93 Wimbledon final against Sampras where Courier was playing well, uh, but there's really not much you can do when an all-time great is just painting lines on those clutch serves in the moments that he does. So did you look at like when there's a loss where, okay, there sometimes there's just, you just got to tip your hat. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny that, that match obviously stands out and Jim had a yeah. set point to go up two sets to one. Yeah. In the in, in the third set breaker, you know, and he, he uh, Pete kind of pushed the backhand volley into the into the backhand corner for Jim, and Jim missed a passing shot uh, on set point to go up two sets to one. That that match could have potentially gone a, a different way if he if he makes that ball. But it's funny. I always remember that was a match early on, the first year that I worked with Jim in '91, where we came back from Australia and we went to uh, Memphis for the the old Memphis tournament, which I wish was still there, but, um, and he lost first round to, uh, Derek Rostagno. And that was after he had made a semi in Adelaide and made fourth round in Australia, lost in five, I think to, uh, Stefan Edberg in the, in the round of 16 at the, at the Aussie, you know, and we felt like we were really on a good path already. Jim was ranked around 25 in the world at that time. <clears throat> and he played Derek Rostagno. If you remember Derek Rostagno, <laughs> And he got beat pretty bad. He got, it was, I think it was like a three and three or a three and four match or something like that. And, and uh, we went and uh, got a late night. Cause it was a night match. We went and got yeah. a late night, you know, some food to eat at, at um, 
some little greasy spoon in Memphis someplace, I think. And I remember we were sitting down and I said to Jim, you know, Jim, uh, is there anything that we that we didn't do leading into the match? Is there anything I didn't do? Did I, is there something I could have done better to help prepare you? Is there something we could have done better to? And Jim said, you know, look, this is pro tennis. And on any given night, anybody can beat anybody. And he goes, and the, the line that always stuck out to me was he said, look, even the Lakers lose sometimes. <laughs> and if you recall back in those days, the Lakers were dominating yeah. pretty much everybody. Wow. And, and that always kind of stuck in my mind. So, yeah, you, to answer your question, you look at it and there's, there's certain times, there's certain matches, even in the biggest moments where, man, the other guy just outperforms you for whatever reason and, and you, you end up coming up short. That's incredible that he has that had that perspective, and uh, it might be another thing that separates some of these greats. You know, it lasted that coaching partnership lasted about four years, and not just that individual relationship, but in general, with your perspective as a coach, is there a time when you realize it's run its course? Where no hard feelings, but it just seems like a, a new voice in the room is good for all sides, and it seems like these relationships do run their course after a few seasons. Yeah, I think it's. Listen, it's less common to have guys that stick together for a super long time. You know, uh, you, you look at like uh, Andreas Seppi, for example, has been with the same coach forever. Now we have Jensen Brooksby, who he's I mean, he hasn't been at the pro level with with Joey Gilbert forever. But I mean, they've been working together since he was like seven years old. Mm -hmm. There's a few like that, you know, that are long, long, long term situations. And the same coach stays with the same player forever. I personally love to see those situations my situation with Jim at the time was a little bit different you know I had known Jim because of Junior Davis Cup since he was 15 years old we had stayed in touch from from the time that you know we got to know each other um, we spent about four years together in that first run and you know we were always working as a team Jose myself and Jim and to be honest with you um, I got approached in 1994 by another player someone kind of organized that told me that he, the guy was interested in speaking to me and and um so i sat down with him went to dinner and and uh, kind of made him a proposal and and um he said he wanted to work with me and at the time um as much as i was loving being with jim and had learned so much from under jose i kind of wanted to be on my own and and take responsibility for you know, wins and losses completely on my own. And so when, it, it, you know, the player was Andre Medvedev, who at the time was ranked four in the world. And, um, you know, so I, I did speak to Jim's agent and to Jose and ultimately to Jim and kind of ask them yeah. what their feeling was. And it was always kind of a funny thing. Jim said, look, man, that's a that's an unbelievable opportunity for you. I completely understand. That being said, Jim didn't say hello to me for like about a year and a half after that. Like he kind of, I always said hi to him, you know, and everything. And he would kind of grunt at me now and then. Well, well, he doesn't really badmouth you now. So you did something right there. So he didn't completely <laughs> yeah, I mean, burn we, that fridge. Listen, we, we had the, I call it courier one and courier two, you know, those yeah. first four years. And then I spent about two, two and a half years working with some other guys. And then Jim asked me to come back and work with him again. Okay. You know, and I worked with him until he retired. So. Yeah. We, we ended on a good note, that's for sure. So that's, you know, and that's, I guess, kind of when you know you've made it as a coach, right, is when you're kind of sought after. Like, people want to work with you, and not that, you know, well, you would be struggling for these jobs, but you coach a, a number one player. Now I think that's 
validation like okay now you're kind of sought after players want to work with you directly yeah no absolutely i mean that's kind of you know i was semi-joking but yeah. semi-serious you yeah. know i've been living off the jim courier <laughs> yeah. you know ever since and it, but it's true you know you lucky enough to be in the box for uh, three out of those four grand slam titles and all three of the other finals and obviously jim's you know climbed to number one and and uh so you've seen that process and you've seen what it takes and you've seen, you know, all the work and all the effort that goes into it. And, and so players do kind of seek that out, you know. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. More with Brad Stein here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Some of the other players you've worked with, I, I want to get to the Kevin Anderson run. I know we're kind of jumping ahead, but <laughs> you being at Wimbledon when he made his run, but also had some of the... Some of the like the the longest Wimbledon match we'll ever see because they changed the rules. But he beats Federer and then he beats Isner in that marathon match. But what I thought was so interesting was after he beat Federer, you've gone on record as said, I was more concerned and impressed with his ability to stay in the moment. Now he, now you beat Federer, we see the letdown so many times when an all time great gets beat that the next match that player that beats him loses. And you were impressed with he was able to manage his moments and kind of redline after that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it's it's a funny moment in a way. I was, when, after Kevin beat uh, Roger, I um, I was waiting for him in kind of the the warm up cool down area, and I actually put a couple of uh, you know little plyo boxes, and I uh, I stood up on him so I could look him eye to eye. <laughs> obviously, Kevin's six foot giant, eight. I'm yeah. five nine. You know, so so I, I spent most of my time with Kevin. You know, like this looking looking up at him. And uh, so I, I wanted to be able to look him in the eye. And the first thing I said to him when he walked in was that, that look, I said, great win, phenomenal match, Kev. You have now put yourself in a position to have a chance to win Wimbledon. And we have to focus on what comes next. So you don't have a lot of time to celebrate this win. And he immediately, in a very calm way, said, said absolutely 100% know exactly what the target is and you know and then was able to go out in that semifinal match against john and and you know reproduce some really really phenomenal tennis the, the, the shot that sticks out obviously is the uh left diving left-handed left forehand yeah. in the game that he finally broke in mm -hmm. in particular where it's just going on and on there's so many serves with stakes on the line and you see a shot like that i gotta think it's as draining as this profession gives you. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, it's just, it, it's mentally and emotionally very taxing. Uh, that's, that's for sure. You, 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 uh, you can't imagine just sitting and watching a match like that, how, how drained you feel at the end of the match, you know, obviously elated when you win. Um, but, but it is, it's, uh, it's tiring, you know? And as Jim Courier said to me after that match, it was all about the, uh, the rally cap at uh, 22 all i don't know if you remember that or not but uh, <laughs> I do. I do. Me and a, 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 myself and a number of uh, kevin's buddies that he played college tennis with at illinois uh you know they all knew what a rally cap was we all we all uh, turned our hats inside out and backwards and uh 
and did rally caps. But we did it. At, I think it was at 24 all maybe or something like that. Jim said, you have to know the moment when you do the rally cap. Don't do it too early. Yeah, I don't know if the All England Club and the normal spectators know what a rally cap is, but the <laughs> exactly. Midwest guys know. Uh, and, you know, kind of just get more on the serious side. One of the other players you worked with was Marty Fish. And, you know, he's gone public with his battles in the past. And I just wanted to know your perspective of his going public with something so serious, shedding light to it. And if you knew that this was, you know, obviously you probably knew that there was more to the battle than under the surface, but just the thought on what Marty Fish has done and how he's gone public with, you know, trying to help people that have his same problem. Marty and I worked together when Marty was very young. So we, we started when Marty was 18 years old and, uh, I spent a couple of years with him. He went from about, um, I think 365 or 370 in the world to like 110. Um, when we, we stopped, USTA came in and, and gave him a, a coach at that time for free. There were some indications already at that time. Marty had a whole routine for flying at that time. He was very uncomfortable, uh, you know, in the taking off and landing process of a flight. You know, once he got up in the air, he was okay. But he was already working, even at 18, he was already working with a sports psychologist, I think, not so much for his tennis as as much as um, that anxiety that he felt about flying. Uh, that was a big that was a big issue for him. Um, and so, you know, I was already aware of that. It never became it never became an issue to the point where, you know, he couldn't get on a flight or wouldn't go somewhere or something like that. But there were indications of that already. As far as his tennis goes, like on court competing and stuff like that. There, there wasn't really much of that that I saw back in those days. I think that's something that kind of developed as he progressed through the game. And, and um, you know, winning, winning is great. Winning can also become a burden. And, you know, as Marty progressed through the game and, and got to be, you know, where he was, a, you know, going to crack the top 10 and was going to surpass Andy Roddick and become the number one player in America and, and, and all of a sudden be in the conversation for big titles. I mean, I think that's when that pressure built up on him and, and his, his issues uh, creeped in a little bit more, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's inspiring that he's been able to go public and, and just share the battle that, you know, he didn't have to do in the name of helping people uh, and watching his documentary. I did think it was a, a very astute observation that, you know, they asked him and Roddick, what the, why did the American tennis bubble burst? And he said, the bubble was Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. That's what burst the bubble is. Those guys just winning all the Grand Slams. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's funny, you know. I mean, that every generation uh, has their guys they have to deal with, you know, and and they're absolutely right. I mean, you know, when Roger and Rafa and Novak were all young at the different times that they came out and started playing, I mean, you wouldn't have necessarily predicted that. Um, you know, they would have 61 grand slams between the three of them, which is, it's insane. It's astronomical that they actually have that, you know, that Rafa just won his 21st grand slam is, is insane. And this generation of tennis that we've been enjoying is just, it'll be hard to imagine that, you know, it'll be surpassed anytime soon. It's insane. It really is. Uh, only way I can put it. Uh, getting back to the present, how did the relationship come to be with uh, your your current pupil, Tommy Paul, who's on quite a heater after beating Zverev at Indian Wells? Yeah, Tommy. Um, you know, I was I, I was uh, running a, my little academy. I had a little academy that I was doing out of where I live in Fresno, California, and and uh, 
was really having a good time actually doing that. And, and we were lucky enough to work with some, some really good young players that have all become very good Division I players at the time. But I got a call from Jay Berger uh, asking about my interest level in, in working with the USTA again. And um, my life was in a little bit of a different place at that point. I had, I'd gotten divorced. My kids were all a little bit older. I, I'd had opportunities to work with the USTA in the past, but, you know, they always wanted you to either move to Carson or move to, you know, uh, Florida. And my kids were younger. I was still married at the time. And, and so I'd always kind of turned it down. And at that time, I was just in a different place in my life. And so I told Jay I was definitely interested and uh, went back and, and uh, you know, talked to them a little bit and ended up taking that position. And that position really is what put me in touch with, you know, this current generation of players again. And, um, you know, I don't think Tommy or Riley Apelka or Francis or Taylor or, you know, any of those guys amongst that group really knew who I was prior to that, you know? And so I got a chance to, to go back and get to know those guys a little bit. I wasn't working with them directly, but um, you know, they were around on a regular basis and I was super good friends. And Tom Gullickson again was working at the USTA at the same time. And so um, you know, what I had done in the past kind of filtered to those guys through gully, I think, you know, and, and, uh, and all of a sudden, there was a little heightened degree of respect from the, from the guys. They were, they weren't like, Oh, this is just some guy that's, you know, random coach they hired from someplace. So, so, and you know, and that, that just, I met those guys, I think when they were about uh, 15 and, um, and saw them develop over the course of time that I was with the USTA. And I I went on a couple trips with Tommy and those guys to, to some junior events and also to some, uh, some futures and uh, just spent time around them. And, and then, um, you know, Kevin, Kevin was struggling a little bit in 2019 with uh, some physical issues. And um, at the end of the year, uh, he was unable to play at the U S open. Tommy was there. Tommy and I talked a little bit there. Tommy had lost in qualifying and he knew that Kevin was going to have knee surgery. And so he, he messaged me and he asked me if I would just help him out through the end of the year. And it kind of started out as a, as a, um, you know, part-time thing just to kind of, cause he knew I wasn't going to be with Kevin through the end of the year yeah. and things went, things went really, really well. Tommy won two challengers early on, made the top hundred for the first time. And, um, and so ultimately he asked me if I would work with him full time. Yeah. He's still young. I think 20, 24 right now. And, you know, for having gone through the career he's had, the, the junior French open, some struggles and then getting back and still being young. It's, it's funny. I spoke with him, uh, two years ago, about two years ago when the pandemic was kind of getting going and he was trying to get back out of the court and he said, I got to get in better shape. Like I've just been sitting around. I have to get in shape. So was that part of like your work with him? I know the forehand changes is, been talked about a lot that you tactically went and we're like, we got to fix this thing. But how much of what you've worked on has been technical? Has it been mental? You know, improving him to realistically been playing the best tennis of his life since he's been working with you. Yeah, I mean, it's been a little bit of everything with Tommy, really. You know, it's been a little bit of everything. I mean, it's we've talked at different times about when I first started with him, you know, in the first week that we worked together, I gave him a list of 11 things that I either wanted him to eliminate add or adjust and and um and he embraced all those things and that was during a challenger that he was playing that he ended up winning 
So Tom, Tommy, I have found to be incredibly coachable. And he, uh, he has a very high tennis IQ. He really understands the game. And um, he, understands, he, he understands his own game. He's, he's really been accepting of the process that we've been going through to kind of build him to, to this point where he's at now as, as much, much, much more of a, an attacking tennis player than he was when we first started. So, I, you know, I give him a lot of credit like you know all the players that you work with obviously they have to put in the work and they have to buy into to the ideas that you're presenting to them you know and and Tommy's really done that and you've said as well like leading up to the title in Stockholm to end last season he was on the verge of a breakthrough you I guess I would assume see that a lot when players are building towards it there's only one winner every week but how identifiable is it where you can tell okay there's good signs here he's improving we're close here. Something's about to happen. Yeah, no, I, I did feel like that. You know, I felt like that all the way back to the start of the clay court season that year because um, because he was playing very good tennis during the clay court season. I mean, he was really, really pushing guys. He was winning some tough matches. But at the same time, he wasn't getting quite as much benefit as you would hope. You know, he had, <clears throat> he had six break points in the third set against uh, Rublev in Madrid in the second round and then, you know, and ended up losing the match and he played uh, Batista Gut twice and, and played, you know, very good for periods within the matches, but, but not good enough to, to even win a set um, played really well in Rome uh, in the qualifying, you know, battling through qualifying. And I just felt that he was really striking the ball well and hitting the ball well. And then unfortunately we, he didn't get a chance to play the grass last year due to an injury that he had with his foot. And then again, we went into the summer and the summer was the same, you know, good, good play, uh, quality matches. You could see the level that he was playing at was better and better, but again, not quite getting the kind of benefit that you wanted to. He did beat Guerin in, um, in Cincinnati. He was playing qualies, you know, he was going through qualies and he was, he was toughing out matches in qualies, you know, and, and uh, playing really well. And actually, you know, like, those matches don't count on your win loss record for the ATP, but you know, he was winning a lot of matches, you know, because he was going through qualies at that time. And then when we went into the fall, he really, really, really at that point embraced uh, the more aggressive style and the indoors obviously lent itself to him playing like that. And, and again, was just playing really sharp tennis, had a really, really high quality, match against Taylor Fritz in Moscow that he ended up losing but but man the tennis was so good and then the same thing happened the next week in St. Petersburg against Chilich and it was a little bit frustrating I was just hoping that he wasn't that he wasn't going to get kind of uh disheartened mentally because you know because he wasn't necessarily getting the results that you wanted and then obviously we went to uh to Paris played well again in Paris uh, wins around in the main draw, goes three sets with Hubie Hercatch. And again, like was right there in the match, but just doesn't quite get it done. And, and it was like, it was frustrating. You know, I mean, I was frustrated a little bit. I was just, you know, kicking myself every time I'd get back to my room and be like, be like, man, just got to get through one of these matches, you know? And then we go to Stockholm and everything just came together match after match. And that was the first tournament where obviously he had pushed through and, you know, got past a quarter, you know, wins a semi and then ends up winning the tournament. And, and, uh, 
you know, to Tommy's credit, he just, I just heard him on something that he was speaking about recently. He then took that result and rather than getting a little bit satisfied with it, he actually pushed himself and had a phenomenal off season. He really worked hard during the off season and got in amazing shape. Uh, a lot of credit to his strength and conditioning coach, Franco Herrero, that he works with in, in Boca. I mean, those two guys, they put in a lot of time and effort in last year's uh, off season. And, um, and he really, he really, you know, jumped, jumped right into it again, the start of this year again. So. Yeah, no, I, he really did put in the, the hard yards as they say. And, and just one last thing on, uh, on Tommy Paul is that I have a bunch of friends who I would consider as casual tennis fans. And we look at it like, you know, who are players to watch? They're asking me all the time, who's somebody outside the big three to watch? And he's a name that keeps coming up. I give him, okay, watch Tommy Paul. There's like a crossover appeal with his aggressive style, the one that you've implemented with his flair to the game. Do you sense that he's, you know, translating that to the, to the masses? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, like when he beats Vera, but not just Vera, but, but plenty of other matches, you know, especially like, again, going back to that fall period. I mean, I'm getting messages from people that I know, but also just fans here in India Wells. I've had a lot of people just, you know, around the grounds that have come up and said like, man, so much fun to watch Tommy play, love the style that he's playing. It's, it's just so enjoyable to watch, you know, and we're, we're not, you know, it wasn't our goal to create something that was necessarily uh, aesthetically pleasing <laughs> for is. the fans to watch. You know, it's, it's the way that we feel that he can maximize his game style um, and his, his attributes as an athlete and everything else. But I think it is a little bit of a different presentation. And, you know, I think that the best and most enjoyable tennis matches are usually, are usually created between opposing styles. Yeah. And we have so many guys in the game that obviously love to sit back on the baseline and just bang balls. So when you get a guy that's playing a style where he's attacking more and coming forward, those, those kind of contradictory styles create really entertaining matches. You said one thing I just don't want to gloss over, uh, the match that he lost where he had a, a bunch of set points and couldn't, couldn't convert. How do you handle the post-match with a player after a match like that? Is it, do, you, do you just come in like, oh, don't worry about it, or do you like, you know, avoid <laughs> them? Like, uh, that's, that's something I don't know. Like, how do you deal with a player that <laughs> no, had the match on the racket? Um, listen, I'm a, I'm a, uh, there's only two things that I ever get really <laughs> upset about you know, with players, and I tell players this. I, I've always pre-worked this when I first started working with players, you know, is that the only two things that I ever really get angry about are – are uh, a lack of effort and or poor conduct. I mean, poor conduct, look, everybody gets irritated and frustrated in the matches sometimes, and you, you might say something or throw a racket, you know, one time. That's not a big deal. But, but if you're, you know, if it becomes a, a pattern, then, you know, we're going to deal with it. But as long as his effort is there and he's, he's working as hard as he can with within the matches to try and problem solve and figure out what he can do to try and be competitive in the matches. You know, I'm never going to be, you know, particularly negative after the matches, you know, we, yeah. we try to, we try to focus on the things that he did well, and then also look at the areas that he has to improve in and get better from match to match. And, and then, you know, get out and focus on those things within the context of his practices and stuff. Yeah. Like just don't say like, for example, like you guys are all corrupt to the umpire. That would probably be 
poor Kanda. <laughs> that would, uh, that was a rough one. I was commentating yeah. that match. Yeah. I was commentating that match in Australia. Yeah, that that's um, I mean that's such a childish comment, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and uh, and also pretty unprofessional, um, you know. And I think anybody that's watched Tommy compete over the last year, year and a half, you know, Tommy Tommy's pretty. Um, pretty level on the on the court you know he, he doesn't get too pumped up he doesn't get too irritable and and negative on the court either when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply couple more things before we wrap up with Brad Stein here on Tennis Channel Insight. And uh, you referenced that your commentary career down in, uh, down in Australia, <laughs> nine now, you're, you're calling matches. And that's, you know, it's interesting. That's kind of when I first heard your voice was on uh, some of those matches two Australian Opens ago when there was nobody in the arena and you were courtside. Uh, Djokovic Verov was one in particular. How did that come to be? How did you decide you wanted to dabble in commentary? And how much do you enjoy being in the trenches as a broadcaster <laughs> you know it, it it um it happened at the 2019 uh u.s open so that was where kevin kevin ended up being unable to play i was still working with kevin at that time and um you know once kevin had decided that he wasn't going to play i ran into jill kravis who i'm friends with and she was doing some commentating both radio and tv at the u.s open and i just said jill you know would you mind checking and seeing if, you know, there's any possibility that I could maybe get involved a little bit. And so she immediately messaged the producer for world feed. And it turned out that they had had a couple of people that had some visa issues. And so they were short a couple of people and, and I got in and, um, I, you know, that was the first time I'd ever sat behind a mic and commentated a match, um, at any level. And so it was an interesting experience for me. I was super nervous the first match. I always remember the very first match I did was, uh, was between Zach Zvajda, who had gotten the wild card from winning the uh, Kalamazoo tournament that year. And he was playing Paolo Lorenzi. And I'm trying to remember who I was doing it with that was doing the color, but thank God for him because <laughs> I, I felt like I was so stiff <laughs> for the first like yeah. you know set or so. And then I made some reference. I don't remember exactly what it was to something. And the producer popped in my ear and said, wow, that was a really good one, Brad. Great job. And as soon as he said that, it kind of loosened me up and I got a little bit more relaxed and, and I really, really enjoyed it. And so I did those, I did the entire two weeks, <clears throat> did some of the pro matches, did some radio, which was really interesting. And, you know, did some junior matches, doubles matches and a bunch of different stuff. And, and I had a great time, I had a great time doing it, you know? And so, I then got the contact for Australia and, uh, and the French actually at the time. And I emailed them and they were nice enough to email me back from Australia and said, we're all set. We don't need anybody. And then, and then at the last minute again, they had somebody that dropped out for the ATP cup. That was the inaugural ATP cup that year. And, uh, they said, Hey, you know, we had someone drop out. Could you come down, you know, like next week? And I was like, sure. I'd, love to do it you know and so tommy was actually it was perfect because tommy was on the team as the alternate so i flew down and i commentated the atp cup and uh was with him the whole week 
you know, that went well. I don't know what I did, but they seemed to like me. And, uh, and again, I got a contact that said, would you be interested in doing some of the matches at the uh, Australian open? And we can, we can kind of fit it in around Tommy's schedule. You know, we'll just try and get you in whenever we can. And, and that was, that was how it started. And then, you know, they've, they've really, really liked me in Australia. I'm not sure I'm very popular in Australia now. So the second year that I went, I got really lucky. And the, the, again, the, the guy that does, you know, most of the producing down there, he's the big guy in charge of everything. His name is James Watson. He put us in one night on a big match with Mark Petchy, myself and John Alexander. And, um, what am I saying? John Alexander, John Fitzgerald, <laughs> John Fitzgerald. Yeah, and, there you go. and Fitzy, Fitzy and Petch and I have kind of become the mainstay for the evening matches, you know, either Fitzy on the court and me in the booth or me on the court and him in the booth with Petch. And we've done a lot of matches together, the three of us now. And, and it's, it's been an absolute blast. Those guys, those guys are amazing to do it with and they make it really, really easy. And, and uh, it, it's super fun. Yeah, I really enjoy it. Yeah, I think the perspective, uh, three-man, three-person boots don't always work. A lot of times they don't work, but just having the balance, you approaching it from a coaching perspective, a coaching background, seeing adjustments, seeing things that are made, uh, and having that courtside view as well. Uh, and, and it's completely different, right? You don't have any real skin in the game. You're not as emotionally invested, but it's still the sport that you love and you're able to, you know, contribute to the broadcast of some, some of the iconic matches that we've seen in Australia in the last couple of years. Yeah. Unbelievable. Listen, I did the final this last year with, with Rafa and Medvedev. And I mean, you know, the end of the fourth set and the end of the fifth set, we went through periods where we didn't say a word for like 10 minutes because, I mean, the tennis was just so phenomenal and off the charts. It was like, man, just let it speak for itself. And um, I think I've gotten smart enough now that I've been doing it for about three or four years to recognize that, you know, or either that or Petch will look at me and hold a finger up like, don't say anything right now. Because <laughs> Petch, yeah. has, Petch has such a great feel for everything mm-hmm. that's going on with the, within the game, you know. For sure. Well, Brad, this has been fun. I, I'm very grateful you're able to take some time to talk to us. It's been a blast. Uh, you know, I just want to finish up with, do you think it's, you know, it's your point in your career is it possible for somebody to or for you to watch tennis with just casual fans do you get amused by people that don't understand the game as much if you're you know leisurely watching the game do you say ah oh, these people are you know making comments they don't really know what they're talking about you know um listen i'm a massive fan of our sport in general and i think the more people that we can get into the game you know that that enjoy it the better off we are and i like at times, you know, I'll go out, I'm a bit of a, you know, a gym rat. And uh, so I'll go out and just sit in the stands at, at, at any given match and watch matches that I enjoy that guys that I want to go watch play girls that I want to go watch play, you know, and, and uh, so you end up just sitting around the average fan and, and uh, listening to them and talking a little bit here and there. And, and, uh, and it's great. It's great. I wish yeah. we, you know, my, the greatest thing that could possibly happen in tennis is that we get to be like, some of the other major sports where there's a lot of people that don't necessarily play the sport, but they know everything about it. You know, you go to a football game or an NBA game and, you know, two thirds of the people in the, in the stadiums have never played that sport, but man, they know every player, they know every rule, they know everything that goes on within the sport. And that's the way it is. I think in Europe and and South America with tennis, you know, is that people love the sport, not just the players so much. And, you know, I would love to see that 
kind of happen in uh, in the U.S. Do you see yourself in the coach's box uh, for the foreseeable future? With, you know, with Tommy now, of course, but is there an end in sight for you coaching? Man, <laughs> I'm not young anymore, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but listen, Tommy's keeping me young, and yeah. being around being around this this next generation of American players, and even the guys that are younger than Tommy and Riley and Taylor and Francis, you know, the Jensen Brooksby's and the Nakashima's and those guys that are coming up. I mean, it keeps you, it keeps you young. I used to say that from the time I was coaching collegiate tennis, you know, the, the, we get older as coaches and the players somehow stay the same age all the time because we, we start with new players. So right now I'm absolutely loving my part of the process in being with Tommy. Tommy makes it really, really fun. And, uh, and we're having some success. So it's, it's really enjoyable. I, I don't see, I don't see any, you know, like stopping point right now. We'll see in another year, two, three, yeah. four down the road. Yeah, a little dazed and confused reference to end. That was perfect. Um, no, Brad Stein, pleasure. Uh, as an analyst, who, last 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 thing, do you have picks for Indian Wells now that you're you know now that your player is out of it? Do you have any any selections for you think holds the titles where you are right now? Uh, I, I know who I know who I would love to see progress further in the draw and have a chance to maybe play for the title for me because he's one of the most entertaining guys and I think that at this point in his career everybody kind of pulls for him um and it sounds like I'm going to say Rafa but I'm not I'm going to say Gael Montes mm. uh, I think that um he's really making a push again and it's great to see him back I think he struggled so much with the pandemic you know with not having people in the stands because he's such a showman and he loves to play for the people and in front of people and it's great to see him back with his energy and, and him producing, you know, really, really exceptional tennis again. And, and uh, so I hope he goes really far. I hope he can, can get through to a really deep position. Obviously, Rafa, but he's got a tough one against Riley today. We'll see how that goes. You know, somehow Rafa always finds a way to get through and, and respond to the challenges that anybody presents for him. Riley presents some pretty rough challenges for everybody. <laughs> So that'll be an interesting one. You know, I mean, I think if Rafa can get past that match, he's got to be the favorite. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, still undefeated in 2022. Uh, incredible. Uh, Brad Stein, pleasure. Uh, as I said, you know, a titan in the game has coached some of the, the greats that we've seen in the last 20, 30 years and a budding broadcaster as well. So uh, <laughs> thanks for joining Tennis Channel Insight and really a pleasure chatting with you uh, and good luck with uh, Tommy Paul and working with him going forward. Thanks a lot, Mitch. I really appreciate it. It was fun. That was Brad Stein on Tennis Channel Inside In. If you like the podcast, you can catch it on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We're also on the Tennis Channel YouTube page entirely. And if you have a Samsung, we're on T2 as well. You'll catch full video episodes there. We'll be back next week. More tennis talk, more guests in the game. I'm Mitch Michaels for Brad Stein. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.